Welcome to the Deer Society Podcast. Here's your host, Brian Lemke. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Deer Society Podcast, episode number two. I'm your host, Brian Lemke, and have with me JJ Ducart. And today we're joined by a very special guest, a guy that needs really no introduction and has an impressive list of big bucks to back it up. One in particular that would blow your socks off, which I want to talk about here in a little bit. Uh, But not only has he shot a lot of big bucks, but also for a living, he designs and develops farms to grow and hold mature whitetails. Uh, So no further ado, welcome Andy Orr. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Absolutely. So Andy, you... uh, you have a, a business, Advanced Whitetail Systems. Tell me a little bit about that and, and how did that get started? Where did that passion come from and, and what do you guys do? Well, right. So um, I think as a lot of people do, I you know I got into bow hunting and it became a progression um, leading eventually to starting to modify a lot of habitat and try and uh, understand how that affected deer. And that kind of led into... Um, a business that I started with Rod White. Uh, we started Advanced Whitetail Systems together, and um, he has since gone on to do other things, do real estate and some other things. But I continued on with that business because it, it really, um, it really speaks to me in a lot of ways. I love the aspect of um, engineering a farm, trying to understand a farm, a piece of ground from the beginning, whether it's you know forty acres or two thousand acres. Trying to understand what can I do, what can we do with this habitat work to understand. You know how to how to hold more big deer on it, how to kill uh, bigger deer on it, and 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 help people in that process. I really love that, and so it's developed into you know a full time business of trying to uh, help people with their farms and design these farms in a way that that puts them on big deer. And uh, I love getting those texts and those phone calls from guys when they kill a you know the biggest deer of their life or the biggest deer that's ever been on this farm that's been in their family for three generations. That's an amazing. Uh, level of satisfaction and so it's really it's really turned into something I love absolutely and you know I think that's one thing that that we all as hunters recognize that there's lots of things that you can do right and lots of things that you can do wrong when it comes to your property and whether it's your property or or just a property that you hunt there's there's a lot of big things and there's a lot of small things how big of farms do you generally deal with uh do you deal with mostly larger farms or smaller farms or, or both? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I deal with both. Um, the average farm might be 150 acres or so, you know, we, we deal with some that are smaller, uh, some that are quite a lot larger, but an average might be 150 to 200 acres. Guys that are wanting to, to create a great whitetail hunting on that farm and, and develop it into, you know, a habitat system that works well for them. And um, everybody has different goals. That's one thing about this is it's 100% you know, customizable because every, every, every landowner has different goals in there. You know, that's one of the things we first start talking about is what are your goals as a hunter? What are your goals as a landowner? What do we want to try and accomplish on this farm? And so that keeps it very, um, every, every, every farm and every landowner I deal with, it's, it's a very new situation. So it never really gets old because everybody has different goals. Um, one of the things that, that we're doing and working on and, and actually filmed a new episode this week is white tails from scratch. Uh, JJ, we mentioned it last episode, and, and it's something that we released the first episode last week. Uh, episode two is going to be coming as well. Tell us a little bit, walk us through what Whitetails from Scratch is and what Andy's involvement is in Whitetails from Scratch. Yeah, so Whitetails from Scratch, basically, 
that's what it is. You know, we're starting from the ground floor, uh, raw property, never had any type of management on it. No food plots, no hinge cutting, no, basically no, no enhancement to it, taking that property and, uh, you know, three to five years trying to see what we can do with the advanced whitetail systems, uh, plan and just, you know, see where we can go and, and what kind of results we can achieve. So brought Andy down and it's been a great, great project so far. So mm-hmm. beautiful piece of property. You know, one of the things I've noticed in, in these first couple episodes that we've filmed and being out in the woods with you, Andy, is not just the importance of implementing these things and, and and trying to get the deer to do what you want them to do, but it's also about thinking ahead and planning now for your hunt setups and your hunt situations so that you can hunt those things that you do effectively. You know, it's not just changing things and putting in more food for the deer to hold them there but it's really even at this stage and and we're here in march setting things up so that you can hunt those those whether it be food plots or uh bedding areas or ponds effectively um Mm -hmm. so tell me about kind of the planning process that you go through um when you first step foot on a farm and some things that you look for and how how you try to give yourself the advantage or or give your client an advantage right i mean so that's, yeah, that's something that's developed through the years is this idea and this knowledge that I don't want to do or, you know, recommend anyone do anything on their farm that is not going to be at least, you know, uh, uh, decently advantageous to them as a hunter. You know, you want to look at every single aspect of it as far as how can this, you know, we're, we're trying to put more deer on the farm. We're trying to put bigger bucks, older bucks. But at the same time, everything needs to have at least an eye, you know, as you go along on how is this going to help our hunting scenario, you know, in, in this area on the farm in general, because at the end of the day, you know, what good does it do if I put in a food pot and a pond and this great situation and, and a bunch of food and hinge cutting and everything else. And it helps a buck grow to, uh, you know, be a, an awesome seven or eight or nine year old monarch. And you can't hunt him because every time you go in there, he just smokes you, you know I mean? He just, just eats you up and, and now you're just left with, why did I do this this way? Why did I put, you know, the whole food plot's all, it's all set up for, uh, you know, a wind I can't hunt or the wind all swirls out of this bottom and messes everything up. You know, trying to understand all those variables that come into play in, in creating a, a situation where the hunter has the advantage is really the art of this whole thing as far as understanding all that and, and balancing, you know, eight or 10 or 12 different variables and understanding, all right, this is going to work, you know, this system in here is going to work. Where when that when those mature bucks are using this area, we can harvest them. You know, we can get in there the first or second time and kill them. Yeah, like I said, one of the most interesting things, and it just actually happened yesterday, is we were out there in the timber and filming, and I saw you walk into this opening where we potentially want to put a food plot. And most guys, I think, a lot of guys, including myself would go in there and say, look, I want to put a food plot here and then get that designed. And then afterwards go back and say, okay, I want to hang a tree stand there or, well, I, I need to to do this and that. When you really had the opposite approach, we, we walked up there and you looked around, you surveyed the area and, and you said, look, here's a perfect tree for a tree stand. This is where we need to hunt. So here's how I'm going to plant the food plot or, or, you design a food plot or, or design a travel corridor so that those deer do what I want them to do. So you really pick the tree first and then design towards that. Right. Well, it's certainly an aspect to consider. Uh, if we've got the tree, you know, you may not have it. You may end up using a, a shadow hunter or a box blind of some kind or whatever. But 
understanding those things working together as far as, all right, number one, how am I going to hunt this area? Number two, is there hinge cutting close by? Is there an area for warm season grass or some something I can bed deer in that they're going to be comfortable in? Three, can I put a food plot in here? Is it open already? Am I going to have to do dozer work in here? Is the landowner comfortable with doing this dozer work? Is he one, Does he want to spend that kind of money? There's just all these variables that come into play. Uh, is there any kind of drainage here? Am I going to be able to have a workable pond system here? You know, because that's a super important element of all this. Generally, water is extremely important as well. Uh, balancing and putting together all those elements and trying to understand that at the same time. I really can't pick a tree if I don't have those other elements close by. I can't pick hinge cutting if I don't have any way to hunt it or trees or it's all pole trees and there's no way to open that up or the landowner doesn't want to do do the dozer work. All those elements come into play, and they're they're um, they're pretty complicated. And that's uh, again, that's really the the nuts and bolts of trying to understand a farm and how you're going to put it together. Is all right. Here's one system. Here's another one. Here's another one. What are we creating as far as movement on the farm and and, and putting those all together? That's that's where it gets real complex. I bet, and I'm sure there's there's a lot of things that you can do wrong as well. Um, you Certainly. know, and we've talked <clears throat> about that a little bit previously you can almost do as much harm as you can do good if you don't set up your things with a plan. So you could set up a food plot in a completely wrong area and and have the deer doing exactly the opposite of what you want to do and and hurt yourself more than you do good. Right. Certainly, you know, trying to understand how they're going to use that area and what, you know, the, the aspect of, okay, does and, and younger bucks, that's one animal. Uh, mature bucks are a different animal. They do not use the, the, the woods the same way as young deer, and you, you need to understand how that works and, and ha- try and have a strong idea, you know, either get a consultation or have a, a strong idea of what's happening as far as the way mature bucks are going to use that area because it, it's not the same, you know. That's a mistake a lot of people make when, when messing around with food plots and planting stuff is, well, I see a lot of deer in this area. Well, do you see a lot of mature bucks in that area? And and are they going to come up onto a big open hill like this in the wide open and walk 150 yards across an open field to get to your food plot? Probably not. <laughs> not in daylight hours anyway. They'll be there at night, but yep. that doesn't help you. Yep. So understanding that is important too. Yeah, and and I agree with you. I think that's that's a misconception that a lot of people have is, you know, they see regular deer movement and and they see patterns, but when you're dealing with big mature bucks, like a lot of us are trying to harvest, they're a totally different animal, totally different, totally different creature. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some other uh, things that you see people do wrong when it comes to to habitat management? Well, I mean, there, there's a number of mistakes that get made. You know, um, uh, hinge cutting just randomly all over the place without an eye towards. All right, you know, if there's deer bedded there, how am I going to get to the tree stand right here? Or what what am I trying to even create or hunt here? Um, that happens a lot. Um, uh, putting warm season grass areas in or, or developing that very poorly and not uh, having any kind of professional involved in that. Um, warm season grass is not easy to get established. And I see a lot of guys kind of play around with it and um, have very poor results. That's, that's a, a mistake I see made a lot. Um, ponds, you know, putting in ponds that, that don't hold water and won't function right. And aren't big enough or, or too far away from the tree stand. So they put in a pond 60 yards away from the tree stand. The deer use it, big mature buck comes in, can't get a shot because he's too far away. Um, food plot design, same kind of thing. I see a lot of, there's still a lot of people that are um, focused on the the destination food plot kind of aspect where they've got this huge, big food plot uh, complex and you have a mature buck come into the far end of the plot, he's 80 yards away, you never get a shot at him. 
uh, he eats a little bit and leaves, you know, starts to figure out there's something going on. The does are spooky and you can blow that system and, and have a, a, now that mature buck will never approach that food plot in daylight hours. You got to have your food plot designed in, in ways that really help maximize your opportunity as a bow, bow hunter or muzzleloader hunter or whatever your, you know, your weapon of choice happens to be. You want to be maximized to, to take advantage of when that mature buck shows you can kill him. He's going to give you an opportunity, you know, having uh, big giant food plots, destination food plots doesn't really help with that much. And unless you're you know, hunting with a muzzleloader, maybe down south or something or hunting with a rifle or whatever. And obviously, I, I, I think you're right on the money. I, I don't know that there's a perfect size for a food plot. You know, if somebody were to ask you, well, how big should my food plots be? Um, I don't know that you can give them an exact answer. Um, you know, there's a lot that, that goes into that. Obviously, like you said, weapon of choice, where you're at. But a lot of the, the food plots, I, I hear you refer lots to kill plots. Mm -hmm. So uh, your kill plots, tell me a little bit about those. Are they in the woods? Are they out of the woods? And how big do you generally make those? Right. Um, if I had to say an average, I mean, a half an acre is is quite average as far as a lot of the kill plots that we go for. Um, quite a few of them bump to two-thirds of an acre if they're elongated somewhat. Um have a lot of them that are a third of an acre. If it's a, maybe a smaller area or the landowner doesn't want to spend a lot on dozer work, they may not want to open up an area that big in the timber. As far as if they're in the timber or in the more in, uh, you know, edges or grassy areas and stuff like that, that, that's usually completely dependent on what how carried away the landowner wants to get. I don't think there's anything uh, better than a, a completely secluded food plot in the timber. Um, they're very, very effective for mature bucks. But they're a lot more difficult to create. You know, you've got to usually get a dozer in there and get involved, and uh, you can end up. You, you, you're usually going to want to uh, ring cut trees on the southern edge so that you're getting decent sun exposure into the plot because if it's shaded a lot of the day, that doesn't help you much. And so they're they're a little bit more challenging, but they are very effective. And when whenever I can, we'll use them. There might be an opening there already, or again, like I said, a landowner might decide, hey. I'm willing to do the dozer work to get some of these in timber plots or the property might be all timber and in order to open for food plots we've got to do some dozer work so it varies a lot again custom on on each landowner but um to answer your question you know half to two-thirds of an acre is a great size for most bow hunting plots and if i'm trying to create an area where i'm going to have bow hunting as well as some gun hunting or muzzleloader hunting and maybe have some ag in there as well or some some like a late winter type plot green plot or whatever then that might expand to um, say an acre to an acre and a half to include both the bow hunting setup and a muzzleloader hunting setup in the same area, which is a super uh, effective technique, by the way, because just because, you know, if you're already creating a, a, an area of confluence for the deer in that area to, to utilize for food and water, and you can create a bow hunting and a muzzleloader hunting situation at the same time, that's great technique. I mean, yeah, whenever why, you can. Why not try to take advantage as much as you can, right? Yeah, you're kind of combining. Well, I mean, think of it the other way. Would you want to do that and create it in separate areas? Yeah, then you're competing with yourself. Right. You're kind of creating a situation where, you know, are the deer going to chew? Because a lot of times there's a lot of overlap in these food plot, uh, in the draw that these food plots have, depending on the weather. You know, if we get a lot of icy snow and stuff, well, then, hey, they may go completely off the green food and they only want ag. And then by the, the reverse, if it's nice and sunny and it's been in the 40s every day, those green plots can be pulling deer like crazy. And so now you're trying to understand, well, which one should I hunt? And are they both, you You got two tree stand setups instead of one? I mean, it's just, 
Whenever possible, I'll try and combine the two. If if the landowner is somebody that is doing some muzzleloader hunting or gun hunting, obviously. Absolutely. So as far as the things that you're you're actually planting in those food plots, do you try to mix it up? You know, plant a little bit of this and a little bit of that in the same food plot, so you're you're not um, really deer have the choice. Are you, are you planting just one thing here and one thing there? And, and what maybe do you do you like to plant? Right. Um, I definitely am a believer in planting as many things as you feel like you want to take on. I mean, obviously it becomes a, a deal of kind of diminishing returns as far as if, if the guy's not into planting food plots and have actually some passion and love for that, then you're, you're, you're trying to stretch the situation in a way that's not going to work because if the landowner doesn't want to pay somebody to plant food plots and they're not interested in it themselves, then you can't get too carried away. But if if possible, um, like we sell a lot of mixes that have um, like fall performance has six different elements in it, uh, winter sweet has five, and then green sugar has three. You know, planting those choices where you've got mixes that can provide different palat- palatability at different weather conditions, different times as they mature and things. Those are, that's really really important because now you've got okay. Let's say fall performance, the turnips they're they're eating the heck out of the turnips right now. Great. Well, then in two weeks maybe they're on this, the the oats and, and the winter uh, wheat that's in it and whatnot, providing the longest window of draw is really the key to me to planting good food plots because I don't want to plant something that the deer just, they love the heck out of it for a week and a half. Yep. Well, that's great. You know, why wouldn't I plant something that they love the heck out of for a month and a half? Right, you right. Know, that they're, they're kind of shifting from, hey, they're on the turnips, they're on the radishes, now they're on the winter wheat, they're eating the Austrian winter pea, whatever, you know. Planting blends, I think, is a really, you know, really, really important. And uh, one of the things with planting food plots that's become so um, important is a lot of the ag stuff that you can plant. Like guys will leave standing beans and things and whatnot. And when the deer, the, the deer generally will hit those really hard. And then once they're eaten out, once they're once they're gone, you've got nothing. And a lot of these blends, a lot of the green blends that you can plant in place of that, um, even when the deer are pounding them. They'll get them clear down to where they're only an inch tall, but they're still growing generally, and they're still uh, providing food. You know, they can't, they just don't seem to be able to get them down and eat them out where they're just completely gone, and they go off that food source entirely. I've, I've seen it before where we just got mowed carpet. You know, you got a half an acre of just looks like somebody's been in there with a mower five minutes ago, and the deer are still coming out and pounding those food plots. They just, they're just, you know, keeping it just nipped down to where it's almost nothing. Green You've had some luck with the green sugar in that yeah, way. Yeah, and do you just, plant green sugar side by side with fall performance or ever mix and match? A or lot of a- times, a lot of times. Yeah, we'll put fall performance is more of a turnip, uh, radish, winter wheat type blend, and green sugar is more of a perennial uh, ryegrass, high sugar perennial ryegrass and clover blend. And we'll plant that. Uh, it's a perennial. So we'll plant it uh, around generally around ponds and in the hillier, more sloped areas around the tree stand and stuff, close to the tree stand because it's a big draw. And then you don't have to be tilling, you know, because it's difficult to till around a pond. And, and I want something that's going to last longer that I don't really have to mess with as much. And that green sugar will generally last three or four years before you have to mess with it at all. And so trying to keep an eye on that, you know, if you have a great love for planting food plots and you really enjoy it, well, hey, lots of annual food plot stuff is great. You know, you'll have you, you have that desire to do that. But a lot of guys may not want to mess with that or they don't have the equipment. They have to borrow stuff. So then keeping an eye on perennial stuff and stuff that you have as little maintenance as possible on, you know, clover blends and things like that where you don't have to mess with it as much. 
be important as well, you know? Yeah, I see that green sugar as a great thing for guys who, you know, don't have the big equipment. They don't have a big tractor. They don't have a, a big area, open area where they can put a food plot and don't have a lot of time to maintain it. You know, something that they can use to, and to create a small food plot even around their stand, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that green sugar is really great for that. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, that's the blend we sell. But, I mean, there's there that idea the, of, you know, perennial stuff that is um, has some high sugar grass-based type stuff in it that's very easy to plant. We I'll do that a lot. My son will plant it with a little hand seeder, and you can do it with a garden rake at times in smaller areas. You know, it's just not something you have to have, get big equipment involved. Like the idea of, you know, planting, planting uh, corn for, for deer is beyond most people's uh, means whatsoever. You know, you just, it's, it's not an easy thing to plant field corn and, and get it to grow right and produce good ears. But this, some of the, the, the blends, the green blends that are available nowadays, you can throw them over your shoulder and walk away and they'll grow. <laughs> I get turnips growing in my driveway, you know, in a gravel driveway. They, they're, they're good about producing some food for deer, which at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want something you're going to be successful with. Yep, absolutely. So. Good deal. So let's talk about, uh, not just food plots. So we're in spring right now. And as we kind of mentioned before, we hunt whitetails in the fall, but there's a lot of things that you can do year round. And, and we're maybe not ready here in Minnesota to start planting food plots yet, but we've been doing some planning work here and we have some things that we're going to be executing here in the next few weeks. One of those is going to be hinge cutting and you are a big believer in hinge cutting. So tell me, maybe for, for guys that don't understand fully, what is hinge cutting and, and what are some of the advantages of that? Right. So hinge cutting is a fairly simple way of cutting a tree. Um, generally, you know, somewhere around chest high, head high. You don't want to be dangerous with your chainsaw or your handsaw, whatever you're using. Um, and, and letting that tree tip over. Um, sometimes you can, you, you know, you can get a little help with that. You can tie a rope to it, or you can use a hook to pull it over. And what you're doing is you're, you're derailing, um, the natural, uh, system that, a that a tree has to avoid being, uh, preyed upon by animals that want to eat its leaves. You're tipping that tree over so that, that they can reach that food and eat it. And they can also, uh, they enjoy that cover on the ground. So you're creating kind of bedding cover and, and, and hiding cover as well as putting food on the ground at the same time. And it's a tremendous, tremendously effective way to um, increase your whitetails on a, on a piece of property, to increase the size of the whitetails on a piece of property. Um, it has tremendous benefit to the bucks in particular with their horns because of the nutrition level that you create when you put that kind of food on the ground because it's important to remember that it's estimated that deer eat 60% woody browse and when you put that kind of quality of food on the ground those tree roots are dragging nutrition and minerals uh, and elements from 15-20 feet down in the soil and bringing that to the surface and out into their leaves and buds which the deer can now reach and they've never been able to reach that before they've never been able to access that level of quality of nutrition and that's why we see, you know, it, it is, it's just ridiculous how many guys that I've dealt with that before we did their hinge cutting project, the biggest deer that they had on their farm was in the 140s, 150s, and that was just generational from the time their grandpa hunted. And now all of a sudden they've got 170, 180, 190, 200 inch deer, even, you know, down Missouri, down areas that don't generally have deer uh, of that size. And that's 
commonplace. I, I just couldn't believe it when I first started doing it. I, I, at first, I was, I was skeptical. Like, you know, is it actually the hinge cutting that's ha- making this happen? But by now, it's, it's just it's extremely obvious that it's that level of nutrition that hinge cutting provides that's creating these, allowing these bucks to reach their genetic potential or more of their genetic potential, where now all of a sudden you've got deer that are throwing kickers and, you know, drop tines and just trash all over their racks because and the, and the, the, around the bases on the burrs are just, just, you know, little kickers and stuff all over the place on the burrs. And, and that's because of that level of nutrition that they're able to reach. And, you know, it, it's amazing to see that. So hinge cutting is one of the, th- it's one of the only things that can truly, you know, really make a jump in the size of the horns on, on the bucks of the bucks on your, on your farm. And there's not, there's just not anything else that can do that like that. You know, I mean, you can provide a lot of different kinds of supplemental food, but you can't you can't provide food of the quality that that hinge cutting provides that has that that mineral content and that nutrition that allows them to jump like that. Yeah, and I think that's overlooked. That's an interesting statistic that sixty percent of you know a, a deer's food is woody browse. That's crazy. You know, we get so caught up sometimes on food plots and cornfields and bean fields and the, mm-hmm. all these other things that deer eat, but really where are they spending most of their time in the timber, not going far from their bed, especially these right. mature deer. So providing that, you know, that food source for them there at a higher level is huge. And I'm sure it makes a big difference too, because you're creating an environment for them to bed in and live in. So not only are, are they, do they have a better chance of getting bigger and taking advantage of the genetics they have, but also you're keeping them there, right? So they don't, mm-hmm. they don't have a need to necessarily leave the property as much. Right. Uh, and certainly the mature bucks, that's where it really comes into play. You know, does and younger bucks are going to wander around and do all kinds of stuff. They're like teenagers, you know, they're just not going to be as focused on remaining in heavy cover. But mature bucks in particular absolutely love it when you hinge cut a farm and create that kind of that level of of density of cover on the ground. They really, really love it. And they're much more inclined to stay, you know, in it and on that farm than go wandering all over the place. Um, That hinge cutting just becomes, uh, like you said, it's multifaceted as far as the benefit it has for the deer. And that nutrition level, again, is just it just can't be overstated. Even for the does and the fawns and everything else, all the whitetails on your farm will benefit tremendously from um, having that that quality of food on the ground. So, so go ahead, JJ. Yeah. yeah so, like when you're hinge cutting a tree, like what's the percentage of the ones that survive? First mm-hmm. of all, and then um, you know, like you hinge cut it, the canopy comes down. Is that the most important aspect of the food source, or would it be like the sprouts that come off of the stump, or just throughout the whole you know tree right. base, or or what? Right. So if you know, I, I tell guys conservatively that 60% of those trees will survive the hinge cutting. Uh, it varies a lot. A lot of times it's a lot higher than that, but I'm trying to be conservative. Um, as far as the food quality and whatnot, the real resource that you're that you're developing or that you're taking advantage of is the sunshine, right? So when you when you allow sun to the forest floor, whether it's that hinge cut tree or the brush that comes in, both have high benefit to the whitetail. They can they can reach them, they can access them, they can eat it. Now you want what I ideally want is a percentage of both. You know, some of them dying off and brush coming in, there'll be, you know, I've counted as high as twenty five different species of you know woody browse on the ground under, and I'm sure it's more than that, and depending on where you're at, but 
that woody browse coming in underneath the, where that uh, where that canopy had been is a super high priority and a, and a real big benefit to the whitetails. But also, if you have that single tree, you know that hickory or that Chinese elm or whatever that you cut, if it lives, that's a benefit too. So, a, in my opinion, a combination of both is is important because there are different kinds of habitat, and I still subscribe completely to the idea that diversity is super super important for whitetails to help them through. Uh, difficulties that they encounter in the year, you know, different different foods, different cover, different thing, you know, different layers is, I think, uh, it's not understood very well. And as we go on and learn more with our trail cameras and our video and everything else, I think we'll continue to find that that diversity is super important for whitetails. So a combination of both making it is really what we're shooting for. When you're out there hinge cutting, do you look for a specific kind of tree? Is there a tree that's better to hinge cut, or does it really just depend on the area? Uh, it depends a little bit on the area, but I mean, I, I I work mostly in the Midwest, and so we've got you know there's some there's some common themes throughout the Midwest. But um, yeah, there are definitely trees that I know deer utilize uh, stronger than others heavily, and we focus on those. Uh, Chinese elm is great. Hickory is a, a great food source. Um, hackberry. Uh, both red and white oak, if the landowner's comfortable with us cutting those, sometimes they have, you know, they can have a monoculture of, of regrowth white oak, and they're fine with that being cut. Um, there's other trees that are not terribly uh, beneficial to deer. Uh, wild cherry doesn't, they don't seem to really pay too much attention to it at all. They don't enjoy it very much. Uh, walnut is not a big priority at all, and obviously it has tremendous timber value generally, so we don't cut much of it. Um, so, yeah, definitely keeping an eye on the trees in the area that, that you have to work with and, and trying to focus on ones that you know deer maybe eat in your area. If you can, if you can identify some of the smaller trees and see that, hey, you know, look, at they're really browsing heavy on this mulberry or whatever. Mul As a running joke between me and Sam Calora, mulberry is, uh, in my opinion, uh, the white-tailed deer's number one favorite food is mulberry leaves. They absolutely will annihilate mulberry leaves. And you can see that everywhere you see a mulberry tree, you'll notice, hey, from five feet and below or six feet and below, there are no leaves on this thing because they just, they just tear them up. But yeah, keeping an idea, an eye, an eye on what, uh, what trees they utilize in your area and you can try and focus on them. And, and even the idea of, hey, I've got a lot of Chinese elms, so I'll focus on that. And it, it doesn't have any particular timber value because they're small or whatever, you know, kind of taking all those things into account. Again, that's where a consultation can really help and give you some focus on, hey, we've got a tremendous uh, resource here with a lot of extra small white oak that we can cut for hinge cutting or a bunch of Chinese elm or whatever, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the consultation part is actually really important because even myself, I could go out there and look and say, well, I have a bunch of different trees here and, and okay, I could hinge cut this one or hinge cut that one, but I, I wouldn't really even know what where to begin. Um, so I think that's where you really come into play, and I'm learning a, a lot from you here doing this White Tales from Scratch episode. Uh, that being said, how if somebody was going to go out and try to do some hinge cutting, what what's the right area to, to do that, and how big does an area have to be to hinge cut for you to, to possibly see any any results from that? Right. I mean, like you said, number one, for sure, I'd recommend a consultation because as I, as I tell guys, I can't stand them back up once you cut them. I mean, the, the, this hinge cutting uh, is severe. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a real commitment to uh, um, changing the timber in your area, changing the whitetail's habitat. 
And so you want to you want to have a, a good strong plan in place before you start hinge cutting and playing around with it because you can't undo it. Once it's done, it's done. Um, and then second, to answer the other part of your question, um, in general, I, I like to say um, a thirty yard, you know, some kind of a thirty yard elliptical circle ish type of area is pretty effective at uh, uh, functioning for a mature buck. Uh, what we call a mature buck cell or or a, or a small bedding area for for deer. Um, some of them we make uh, might be quite quite a lot larger than that, depending on the trees and how uh, they're hinge cutting and how they're falling and stuff. I, if it's real open and deer can move through it well, I might make it quite a bit larger than that. But in general, twenty five to forty yards is is a good size for a cell like that. And then you might stop for you know, 15 yards or so and start another one, 20 yards and start another one. Um, what you're a part of what, what I'm trying to create when I do that is the edge cover is a, a, a real priority for whitetails. They love to move around edges and being, being able to move around the edges of those hinge cut and eat all the lush stuff that, that is growing in those sunny edges becomes, I mean, just becomes instantly a real priority for them. And uh, so when you, if you thought about it in terms of, okay, I'm going to hinge cut an entire acre, right? So that creates a certain amount of edge cover. But as far as overall surface area, we're better if we take that acre and divide it into 10 small, uh, like I said, basically elliptical, whatever, circular uh, hinge cut areas that the deer can, that, that edge cover now is quadrupled, you know, or, or more. You've got that much more of that priority edge cover that they absolutely love. They love to sneak into those edges and bed. And they love to to work their way around the edges and eat um, eat that really really lush growth that happens on those edges. So, so you don't really need a huge uh, a huge area to hinge cut and have it be effective. Is kind of what you're saying. I agree with that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, I think um, you can end up in a diminishing returns kind of deal because if you're hinge cutting a large area, the deer can have difficulty penetrating to the center of that area as it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And now. Are there deer that may do it? You know, mature bucks that may still try and fight their way to the center of that? Yeah, but I've, I've found um, returning to areas and, and uh, studying them and filming some that those areas can be so dense in the center that the deer can't really reach them. They can't really get to them. So kind of kind of keeping it on that edge. And another focus as you're doing it is really um, making sure that you're, you're uh, keeping as much of that stuff up off the ground so that deer can get in and access all that areas because what they want is food and cover. And if they can't get in there at all, and all this stuff just falls into a giant pile of, of logs and they can't access it, then you've just wasted an area. You've created nothing. You know? You've created a, an area that they can't really utilize. So making sure it stays loose and open, because it's going to fill in with brush and stuff. And so try and keep it loose and open so that they can get in and access all that priority food that they want in there is a really, really um, key principle in trying to get it done. I would imagine that that creates some pretty good shed hunting, too. Are, are uh, those hinge cutted areas? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, the deer are bedded in there a lot of times, and they're eating in there and whatnot. So you can. Who was it? Just Landon I just spoke with. Uh, found uh, over forty sheds in his hinge cut in the course of like one day. Him and his wow. family. Uh, and I, th I think he said they found six that were in fields. So really? that's a pretty that's 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 a pretty telling uh, statistic, you know. He said basically they were just going from hinge cut to hinge cut because they figured it out right away. That, hey, they're all in the hinge cutting. So that's awesome. Is that just because of the win winter bedding that time of the year, or the food source that lasted all the way through? I'm January sure it's February? both. I'm sure it's both. Yeah. You know, they love bedding in them, and uh, then they're also 
in there eating a lot too and I'm sure knocking a horn or two off on the hinge cutting accidentally from time to time, but mostly just in there eating and bedding. What's the perfect diameter tree for a hinge cut? Is there such mm. thing? Oh, I would say maybe, you know, somewhere in that 8 to 12 inch mark would be nice. Uh, obviously, uh, and this is something that may, may not get talked about a ton, but hinge cutting is extremely dangerous. It mm -hmm. is not something that I would recommend any uh, landowner try on their own. It's a very dangerous pr uh, prospect. It can be because when you're hinge cutting trees like that, they can, they can uh, barber chair and do all kinds of crazy things that if somebody doesn't have any, you know, real solid experience with a chainsaw, it is not recommended that you try it. Um, and, you know, if you feel like you're experienced at it and you want to give it a try, certainly using total protection, you know, protective equipment is a big, big key. Do not do it without a helmet. Do not do it without eye protection. Do not do it without chaps. And, and be careful because it is a very dangerous prospect. I've been hurt a couple times, and it's it can be dangerous. So. And if, if the trees start to butt out and leaf out, you can't really see what's up there, and there's a lot of torque, you know, trees leaning, right, the, branches. One of the, just, yeah, one of the nastiest parts about it is what is hung up up in that tree that you can't see or that you don't realize it's actually attached. It's like a giant game of pixie sticks, you know. There, there can be a 100-pound branch that's sitting up there that you don't even realize it's not attached, and as soon as that tree starts to fall, it, you know, flip back and hit you or fly over your head or do all kinds of stuff. So it's it's uh, not something for uh, the average uh, person to try, in my opinion. So time of the year, you don't want leaves up there if you're going to go out and hinge cut. Yeah, I mean, to start with, you won't you don't want to hinge cut when there's uh, when trees are fully leafed out anyway. Um, two things happen. Number one, they're not likely to survive it. And number two, the there's a Velcro sticky effect with all those leaves. They won't fall worth a, sh worth a hoot. They just will not... <laughs> Did I say shh? Um, <laughs> they will not fall where the hoot, they, they kind of stick together and they're, they're, it's all Velcro type stuff and they just and won't fall. And just, they're just grabbing each other, yeah. Right, and conversely, one of the best days to uh, hinge cut on is, is a day when maybe you've had some light rain and the, the, the mm -hmm. trees are not leafed out and they're real slippery. Now you gotta be careful on the ground where you're at and whatnot that you don't fall and stuff, but the, the trees are much more hate to use the word lubricated, but they, they slip on each other much better and they're, 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 it's safer situation. Almost like a sharp knife is easier to cut with. But Yeah, yeah so you have to wait until the ice melts so you're not slipping around yes. with your boots, but you got to go before the... Yeah, one of the, nasty, yeah that's one of the nastiest parts about it is your footing for sure because you're in and, in and around a lot of um, nasty footing and, and you don't want to slip and fall when you've got a tree that's trying to find you. You know, so. so you got a short like window, a, like a two-month window, or yeah, I would say right in there, yeah. be two months. You know, somewhere generally think from March first to May first here in the Midwest is about May first is about as late as you're going to be able to cut without leaves starting to really be too big to hinge cut trees. But it, it depends a little bit on the weather, and if we get a nice break in the weather and it gets warmer, you can you can hinge cut much earlier than March. So certain years, you know, you'd be doing it in January if it's nice out. Not here in but, Minnesota. Yeah, not here. Yeah, not here in Minnesota. <laughs> what is it? I'll tell you, negative ninety-seven. <laughs> what, what was the temperature when we were doing that first uh, filming section? It was Seventeen negative, below. Seventeen Wind below. Yeah. Thirty-five yeah, or something. That was the real temperature. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty brutal. Adam looked like uh, what's the character's name from Yukon uh, Cornelius? Yukon Cornelius. That's exactly what he nope, looked like. Nope, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I, I think uh, I think one important <laughs> last thing to add there about hinge cutting is the place that you choose to do your hinge cutting again <clears throat> should relate to where you're going to hunt. 
do you like to do a lot of your hinge cutting to bed the deer where you want them to hunt, you know, based on where your tree stand location is. So again, I, I relate it back to yesterday. We, mm-hmm. we, we found this spot. You looked at a place and you said, this would be a great place for a tree stand. We should put food here and then we should do hinge cutting here. And that hinge cutting wasn't really right next to that, but it was within the vicinity. So you're thinking about not only where to hunt, where you want them to feed, but also where you want them to bed. Right. And you don't want them. I mean, one of the big keys, it seems sort of obvious, but it's not always uh, in the process of planning is you don't want deer to be bedded where they can see you approaching a tree stand or, you know, even more importantly, where they can see you climbing. You know, if they see you climbing up the tree, the jig is up, you know, it's not good. Um, You just get this wave of deer blowing all over and they're freaking out and they understand that you have a tree stand there now. That's not good. So you want to definitely keep in mind, um, and again, the consultation thing or whatever, but you keep in mind that, okay, my tree stand location is here and do I have enough room and space to get to where I need to get to without causing any kind of a tidal wave of, of uh, spooking deer out of this area. Optimum being, you know, you can climb into your tree stand, get everything all ready and stuff, and then, you know, as the afternoon or whatever develops, the deer come out of their bedding areas 100, 150 yards away, yards away and have no idea that you had even climbed in the tree, you know. And, and also hope for that they're, you know, not that they're not stacked into the food plot, 15 of them when you try and leave, you know, because that becomes a problem too, you know, you got to be able to get out. So, and that's where some of the movement pattern develops where we've got these, these food plot systems fairly close by where deer will move into a food plot feed for a while and they move on because they have other things they want to go visit. And, you know, that's an interesting point. So you're in a tree stand and it gets dark and you're Mm -hmm. covered up in deer. Mm -hmm. What's your go-to move? (laughs) (laughs) You got to do the coyote howl and try and get out, you know? Yep. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know any other, I had a deer last year. Um, this buck I called Goose that I took my daughter hunting and I had already tagged out with my buck and I, so I was just doe hunting. Of course, who comes marching in to the tree, but Goose, this giant eight-pointer, five-year-old eight-pointer, beautiful deer, literally just locks up and stops underneath us at five yards, stands there for 20 minutes and then slowly circles us and beds down right behind us, 10 yards, straight downwind, phase doing his thing. Just, I mean, he had absolutely was in the zone he had no idea we were in the world and he lays down and goes to sleep behind us i mean this he's putting his nose in his butt and his head is tilting over where his horns are resting on his back he's out cold and we're just sitting there my my daughter's just laughing and eating granola bars all quiet and everything and we're so everything's great until it's now it starts to get dark it starts to get cold and she's only you know she's 11 now so she's 10 years old and i don't want her climbing out of the tree in the dark even though we've got safety lines and everything and so I'm starting to flip out a little bit. I'm, I'm realizing, all right, you know, he's sound asleep. We have no way to get out of here. We're going to make a bunch of noise climbing out or enough that he's going to hear us. So I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit him with the coyote howl. <laughs> Do my coyote howl, nothing. Doesn't care. Just kind of glances a little bit in the zone. He doesn't care. Hit him a second time with the coyote howl, nothing. I'm like, great. All right, what options do I have now? I thought, all right, I'll do a grunt snort wheeze. And then he'll 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 get pissed. He'll stand up. Maybe you figure it out. Maybe I'll coyote howl again. I grunt snort wheeze. He just like looks in our direction a little bit and just sits there. Nothing. Grunt snort wheeze again. Nothing. Just look in our direction. I'm like, I do not want to spook this deer and and yeah. and turn him on to the fact that this tree right here that he's walked by a million times. I have trail camera proof. He's walking by this tree on a pretty regular basis that we found out after we hunted because it was a trail camera. I couldn't check 
real critical area. But I learned afterwards, you know, he's 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 by this area a lot. I don't want to spook him to this tree. All right, so what am I left with? So I thought, all right, I'll blow like a deer, you know. So <sighs> just do this big blow. Boy, his head goes up and he stands up real slow and he's just kind of looking up. We got a little bit of standing corn in front of us and he's looking at that standing corn, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then he just goes in. I can see him just like relax again. He's just like, whatever, I don't care. I'm like, dude, it's like getting dark. My daughter, I'm cold, dad, I'm cold. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is this deer? I mean, just come on, dude, what are you doing? So again, I hit him with just, you know, the loudest right at him. I mean, out of the tree, he's bet, he, now he's standing, but he's, he's like 12 yards from the tree. Got all this on video. <sighs> right in his freaking face. And the deer just like looking, never looked up. He's just looking up at the corn, stands there for another two minutes, and then just slowly just turn and just walks real, real slow down the trail and walked right out of sight. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he was not, I mean, not spooked at all. It was it was awesome. And I hope to kill him out of that tree here in the coming year. I Tanner and I tried, but we didn't see him that day. But well, that'd be quite the story. That's that's pretty cool. He's a really cool deer, big, tall, tall eight pointer, really neat deer, and just um, I mean, he was in in front of us at five yards in full sun at like four in the afternoon, just just putting on a show. The video is super cool, and filmed him with my phone. I filmed him with the high def camera. I felt he caught him on uh, video on the trail camera, and filmed him with a GoPro. We caught him on four cameras. I mean, he just put on an incredible show. You know, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. I bet that's his uh, name's Goose. So remember Goose. All right, look, look for Goose th this next year on the mm -hmm. uh, Deer Society Hunt Breakdowns. My daughter named him Goose because we had a beautiful flock of about twenty Canadians come in and land right in the pond right in front of us that evening. So cool. That sounds She's like, like a, let's call him Goose. Like an evening <laughs> she won't forget very soon. Yeah, it was <laughs> it's awesome. like a little mini sleepover with Dad and Goose. The the cool part was part of it was that uh, when he when I, I I was setting up some camera stuff and I, I just heard this huge like. Like this big old twig snap. And I was like, that cannot be a deer. Oh, my Lord. And the goose is standing like five yards away. And I looked down at Ruby, and she was sound asleep, just out cold. I mean, just harness holding her, just tip forward, just out cold. I'm like, oh, not good. So I reached down real slow. I put my hand on her shoulder, nothing. Uh, give her a little, little bit of a shake and whatnot. She, like, wakes up, like, half pissed off. She's like, Ooh. and she sees my face. I'm like, Look down at this deer, and she like looks down. And she's like, just froze and just like so into it. She was, it was awesome. That is awesome. She really loves bowhunting. Very, very cool. Yeah, it sounds mm -hmm. like you guys will have some good experiences here coming up. Mm -hmm. That's really she's cool. fun to hunt with because she's crazy animated, yeah. crazy just just gets so excited about everything. I think she, I think I see where she gets that from. Sure, sure, <laughs> I love it too. I guess. Um, so talking about a few more things that that you can kind of do to to improve your chances. So we've talked about food plots. We've talked about hinge cutting. One of the other things that's getting talked about more and more, and I've had a lot of success over, I think you you and your team has had a, a little success over too, is ponds. Mm -hmm. um, so how often do you put in ponds and where do you put them? Do you put them close to your food plots? Do you put them further away? What What's kind of your, your theory on ponds? Right. Um, I guess to start with, my theory on ponds is they are, I could not overstate how important they are. They're absolutely critical. Um, they are incredible hunting situations. They are incredible for your deer, for your deer herd. And you just, 
can't overstate how important they are in your overall habitat strategy. I mean, they're absolutely critical, critical, critical to your hunting. And I tell guys this all the time and some, you know, sometimes people get it and sometimes they don't, but the ones that do and go and put them in, it happens all the time. They come back, they text me, they message me, they see me the Iowa Deer Classic, whatever. They just fill in my ear with, dude, we put that pond in. I killed a giant over and they're showing me the picture and everything. It's just, they're just absolutely such a key piece of the puzzle. And as you said, putting them in, in the right area is important. It's definitely something to consider strongly. You want them to be, you know, for in the particular situation you're in, you want them to be uh, in a very uh, advantageous situation for you. In other words, what are the prevailing winds in this area? Am I hunting? And, and as far as food plot stuff, yes. If I'm putting a food plot in, almost invariably we're also putting a pond in. Um, and, and how does those two work together? And, and can I have deer that are in this food plot and then hitting this pond, but not getting downwind of me? That's a real key principle, understanding, all right, you know, they're, how are they gonna use this? You might even use uh, what we call bump barricades for that. You know, you can use some of the brush and some of the things that are cleared in the process of designing the food plot and making the food plot. You can use that stuff to create a bump where deer can't really get around behind you as well. I mean, it's, it works really well and whenever you can, because you know how, as well as I do, they always show up where they're not supposed to, which is a simple survival principle, really. The mature bucks, you'll have all these deer come in and they put on a show and they're in the food pond, they're in the pond, they're doing their thing. And then where's the mature buck show up? He shows up 25 yards downwind of you behind you because he knows about your tree stand. Um, you know, an old, an old boy told me a long time ago, mature bucks do their homework at night. And that's the facts. They, if you put, do, do it as a test sometime for yourself. Go into the woods, walk randomly into the woods and try and touch nothing. And then just grab a hold and grab some leaves and put your hands on them. And then hang a trail camera right there. And watch what happens. You'll have 15 deer that night that will come in and sniff that leaf. And then you'll see them look around and whatnot. And then you'll never get their picture there again specifically mature bucks. Now, some, some mature bucks, they couldn't care less. They're just not wary like that. But in general, mature bucks, will they will come in, sniff those leaves, mentally program that there is a human that messes in this area. I'm not coming back here. And if you notice, you'll see them circle that area at, at the 60 to 80 yard mark. They'll go right by it. They kind of check on it. They'll do it on the downwind side a lot. They're just keeping a mental log of, is that guy back there? Is that guy back there? Is that guy back there? And that's how they utilize their habitat, and that's how they avoid getting killed. So how do you beat that? Right. So like I said, planning a situation where you've got hopefully you know uh, something on the back door of that situation where they can't approach you very well. They're not inclined to approach you. It might be a, a river. It might be an open area that, that they're just not willing to go out into that completely open area, right? Or understanding your prevailing winds, you know, trying to understand, all right, this is a situation we can hunt on north and northwest, and that's it. That's, that's something that I would say is, is really misunderstood by a lot of people is there's only going to be, it's a very, very rare situation to have a, a, a tree stand location that is so good that you can hunt it on west, north, northwest, and northeast or whatever, you know. That's a rare, rare thing. When you find one of those, they're amazing. But in general, you might only have just a couple of wind vectors that you can really concentrate on on a particular spot and say, hey, I know I can hunt this and that boy, that, that mature buck's not going to approach me from the area where he's going to nail me, you know? Yeah. yeah you know, that that's interesting too. 
uh, I, I've talked to a lot of people about the wind direction and how do you, can you beat the wind? Do you hunt the wind? And that's where phase comes in. And, and we've all had a lot of success using phase, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, I've heard you talk about it too. Sometimes when the wind's good for you, it's not necessarily good for the deer. So there's a big discrepancy there. And I've heard you talk about the 10% rule. So tell me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. So you always give the deer 10%. Right. Well, it's kind of the idea that if you have a complete wind advantage in a situation on a buck, he may be not inclined to approach that situation in daylight hours because he knows he's at a serious disadvantage. And I know it's a common, you know, in the process of doing all this, talk with a lot of guys who are really good at killing big deer. And a lot of people really subscribe to the idea that you can give those deer a percentage of the wind, you know, some of your wind which makes them feel a lot more comfortable in approaching a situation. But of course, you know, if they catch you at all, if they too, do truly get your wind, you're, you're screwed. So the object is to give them a percentage of it so that they think they've kind of got it. Because I have noticed through the years that mature bucks don't seem to be able to, don't seem to have the ability to completely understand whether they've got a given area or not. Or maybe it's just that they're more willing to, when they think they've got most of it, they're, they're like, well... You know, they just kind of like, all right, they, they accept it a little bit better, you know. Um, a lot of times you definitely see situations where if they don't have the wind on a situation in, at all, where it's blowing completely wrong for them, they just won't approach it in daylight hours. You'll get pictures of them there at night. And this is something, again, you can document with um, trail cameras and try and understand what kind of buck you're dealing with because that's another aspect of this is I can pretend like I can generalize about mature bucks, but I can't. It's all, it's just hocus pocus. Every, every mature buck is different. Some of them will do things that you just, that a year and a half year old would do. And other bucks are so wary and so sneaky that they literally, um, I can think of one buck in particular that I know he's 11 years old now. This buck will not show his face in daylight out, or at least the trail cameras tell me in, the, in that area that the, he, this buck will not show his face in daylight hours, period. Period. There'll be... You know, maybe I think in two years that we were messing with him, there was uh, uh, one day in October that he was willing that he that he, we actually caught. It. It's like, oh, it's a daylight picture. You know, just freaking out because. And then other bucks, like I said, what was the buck you were just showing me? Uh, on, Beamer. Yeah, Beamer. Yeah, what'd you call or him? Or Bolt? Because <laughs> he's running all the running. time. But uh, that that buck appears to live completely in daylight. He's what? on his feet. Constantly in the daylight, and it, and you know we did some habitat work out there a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. it's improved for sure since you you were out there and improved it. You know, with habitat, um, hinge cutting, food plots. So he's right. more daylight active now than he was. Yeah, that's good. In years past, so oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good to hear. And um, that aspect of it is really misunderstood for sure by I think a, a lot of people. Is you know. If you're going to try and kill a particular buck that's on your farm, don't generalize about what he is or what he does. Learn his habits and what he actually is. You know, right. don't don't use that generalization stuff because you, you just can't. You're going to be wrong. Right. Yeah, I think actually <clears throat> deer are a lot like people. You know, they they they're all different. We're all different. They have different personalities. They have things right. that they tolerate, and there's other ones that that don't tolerate the exact same thing. So I I think that not making generalizations about even mature bucks, you know, that they're all the same is, is a, a really good thing. Right. You know? It's, it, it's a, you can't do it. You're going to be wrong so many, so many times that it's a, it's a waste of your time to, to look at it as far as, you know, well, they only do this or they only do that. 
But some of the bucks Colton has dealt with through the years, I mean, I think right away of uh, Megatron, I mean, that deer, they saw him almost every day in daylight. And here he was, a 200-inch, just beautiful, uh, I think he was six and seven years old at that time. They'd see him up in the yard, and mom had dogs. I mean, that deer was all over the place. And like I said, other bucks will not show themselves. They're just, they're all individuals. And the same as you and I, some people will fight. Some people are, you know, some of those bucks are breeders. Some of them don't breed very much. Some of them fight. You'll see they're busted up all the time. Other ones, you see them in December and they have every single time that they had, everything's perfect. They didn't fight, you know, or, or get in any kind of real brawl. Uh, some of them cover ground in daylight. Some of them uh, only walk around at night. You know, it's just try and figure out the deer. And your cameras will tell you that, you know, they'll tell you what kind of deer, you're, what kind of animal you're dealing with. And that, that lays out a strategy of how to kill him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> uh, going back to ponds for a second. So a lot of guys think, well, I have a stream going through my property or I, I have a little creek or, or something like that. So I have water for them there. And they don't think it's necessarily beneficial to build a pond. And I can say from my experience that I've seen deer walk across a creek or across a stream or, or a long one to get to a pond. And I'm not sure why that is, but do you see kind of the same things, uh, you know, a, a deer preferring a, a stagnant pond over kind of running clean water? Yeah, I see that absolutely a ton. And it's something that I always have to deal with. Um, uh, guys are always like, well, there's a creek down in that bottom, you know, there's a creek down there or whatever. And can't tell you why. It's it's just a piece of knowledge I do not have. Maybe somebody out there knows. Uh, 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 message the Deer Society if you do, because I would love to know. But I don't know exactly why. But deer love those muddy ponds. You know, is it a is it a taste thing? Is it a mineral content thing? I don't know. But you can see the most beautiful little flowing clear stream that comes out of a spring, and it's year round. It's there. And they will walk right past it to get to those little muddy soup hole or what we call kill ponds. You know, they, they, they absolutely love them. And I, I don't have an explanation exactly of why. Maybe another theory I've had at times is maybe they are definitely an animal of energy conservation. You know, they don't live in the same world you and I do. If we run ourselves ragged, we can just go eat some food, recover, be fine, whatever. Deer live close to the edge of survival. And so... In order to drink out of that stream, they've got to walk 80 yards down that into that ravine, drink, and then they got to walk 80 yards back out of it uphill. And if you ever notice how those deer trails so often, they go around the crowns of hills, they go, they'll do almost anything to not lose elevation. And elk are the same way. They, they'll do that, you know, when they have to, they'll go straight up or straight down. But in general, they want to not lose elevation because it's energy conservation. Maybe that plays a factor in why they love these little ponds that we create because hey i'm already at the food plot i'm already eating it's just too easy to use that as a water source instead of now i gotta go 200 yards down the hill drink out of the creek and come all the way back up i don't know but one way or the other it cannot be overstated how important ponds are in your habitat improvement it's it's a very 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 important piece of the puzzle yeah and i think going back to that too not necessarily the ener energy conservation part of it but also the way that you dig your ponds I've noticed that deer will always drink more out of a pond if it's gradually sloped, you know, because they, I, if you watch them and they go in to drink at a pond, if it's really steep and they have to look down, well, they lose eyesight then of what's around them. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that deer really enjoy drinking more out of a pond or I've seen them do it more when they can kind of keep their eyes up and even look. So there's more of a gradual slope around 
mm-hmm. around the pond so you know they don't have to deal with a, a steep incline when they're drinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an interesting point because what we do now, I've just discovered through trial and error, is now we put that slope where we want to put that slope, right? So you have the, the ponds are very steep on the, on the edges, on three quarters of the pond or so, or sometimes half of it. But anyway, what you're looking to create is steep sides so you don't have those mud flats, so we don't have an, as much of an issue with EHD and the gnats that, that, that uh, spread it because it's the mud flats on these ponds that is where the gnats breed. So I want steep sides on a pond, except on the area that I want deer to approach and move down into it, which of course is broadside to the hunter that's in the tree 25 yards or 15 yards away or whatever. You try and create that where that, the natural approach is down that little gradual slope, because just like you said, they will use that gradual slope time and time again. And that gets you a broadside shot at an animal that's completely relaxed and making noise with its mouth. So they don't even hear the bow go off or anything. Nothing quite like shooting a whitetail that's drinking. <laughs> you got any examples of any bucks you've shot off the water? Ha ha, I think you know of a couple. <laughs> well, there, of course, there's Colton Hall's Mr. Maybe, a uh, 228-inch beautiful animal. And then I shot Big Bucket, who's 227. Uh, what do we got up here? Before. Yeah, that's, that's Big Bucket. Uh, he was killed off a, a small water source in the timber that I found when I was squirrel hunting one day. And I thought, my gosh, there's got to be a mature buck using this as a drinking hole and I uh, started to investigate the area a little bit and found um, some gigantic rubs and just really realized, wow, I'm in the core area of a, of a really big animal. And that's how I started a plan on him and killed him a couple of years later over that pond. So, so this is a, a podcast, just a note here. So a lot of people aren't watching this. Uh, some people are watching video, but a lot of people are listening to it. So for you guys that are listening to this podcast we have a picture of andy's deer big bucket up here on the screen and if you want to see that just close your eyes and picture your dream buck with a big drop tide and then picture andy sitting behind it and that's what you, that's what we're looking at right now. so <laughs> include points? dork behind it <laughs> how many points you got up there uh it's 23 points yeah so with a bunch of kickers and really made my Made my day. It's my buck of a lifetime, I'm sure. I'll probably never see a, a buck that big again. But I was self-filming and um, didn't even grab a hold of my bow until he was six yards in clothing and really, really, really exciting and was able to put a great shot on him. I got entry side lung and then right through the center of his heart, which uh, I guess truthfully was not what I was aiming at. I'd much rather get both lungs, but I'll take it. It was a couple inches low and uh, caught entry side lung and heart, and I heard him crash about uh, 60 yards away and knew he was in trouble, but I still snuck out and went and got my brother-in-law and a close friend, uh, Jamie Fuller. And we went back and blood trailed him with uh, our our uh, noses in the wind, you know, never gave him our wind and walked right up to him. And he was dead as could be. And Unbelievable day. Yeah, unfor- unforgettable day for sure. I, I can't imagine what I would do if, if, a, if a buck of that caliber I can tell you it involves waving your arms around and yelling into a video camera. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Something like that. Well, to kind of come full circle on everything here, I think one of the most important aspects that we talked about today is, is there's lots of things that you can obviously do, not only uh, down the road, but starting right now and throughout the year to um, kind of better your chances. But 
those things need to be really planned out. You have to have a specific plan and you need to, to think about them before you, you do them. Don't just go plant a food plot in the woods to plant one. Don't just go cut some trees down because it's hinge cutting. Think about how you're going to hunt and and plan accordingly to that. Is that what you, you would say? Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember that the piece of property that you have, if it's 20 acres or it's 2,000 acres, it's hypercritical to look at it from the perspective of that it is a raw material. It is, a, it, is, it is just a start of a number of things that you can do that start to point. You know, I always like to consider it like it's like small arrows that can be either red or they can be green. And you, you want to get all those arrows pointed in the right direction to, to allow you to harvest uh, the, the, the kind of deer that you want to get. And putting as many of those arrows, those all start to add up, you know, when you start to put, you know, you get your food plot and it's in the right place and you got a bunch of hinge cutting and you're, you're providing better nutrition and growing bigger deer and you've got your pond and it's functioning and the deer have figured it out and they're using it all the time and your tree stand situation is good and it's all set up right and your access and all these things start to point in the right direction and get you, you know, where you're, you're increasing your odds, increasing your odds, increasing your odds every, every step of the way. And that aspect, I think, is really the new frontier of whitetail hunting, you know, uh, looking at a piece of property as simply a raw material. And that's why it's so exciting. And that's why it's just catching on like crazy is because everyone understands, my gosh, you know, I can, I can change this piece of property in dozens of different ways that can help me as a whitetail hunter. Because, I mean, again, like we were joking earlier, no one, no one really cares if I can kill big deer. They, they want to be the badass. They want to kill the deer themselves on their own property, you know, and have that satisfaction level of just like, you know, I did all these things and I changed all this stuff and it worked. You know, it wasn't just a random event. That's what changed. That's what, what is so different about all this is when I started bow hunting, the woods were just a giant mystery, and we didn't know anything. There wasn't really trail cameras. We just started to get those, you know, those little old 35-millimeter trail cameras and stuff. And for a long time, we didn't even have those. And so the woods were just kind of a mystery, and you just sort of went into the woods and, like, whatever happened, happened and stuff, you know. And you just like, oh, a deer walked up. Yeah, it was a, it was a buck, a big buck. Yep, it walked up. I'd never seen him before. Didn't know him, nothing. Didn't do anything or change anything. I just, it just happened by random happenstance. And nowadays, people are going to huge effort in changing things and creating things and out there, you know, just year-round, putting in the time, putting in the effort, um, shed hunting, running trail cameras, foods of every description, hinge cutting, ponds, warm season grass, changing all these things and putting odds in their favor and developing a huge amount of satisfaction so that when a buck does finally walk in and you realize like you know it's curly you know it's a buck they know it's a buck they purposely uh, uh, changed habitat to help him and create him your satisfaction level is 10 times the old days 10 times yeah. easily it makes it just that much more rewarding yeah it's just so rewarding to to put that kind of you know effort and time into something and change it and modify it and and rack your brain and, you know, go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it and you're thinking about it at work trying to understand what can I do? What can I, how can I improve it? How can I improve it? You know, and that's, that's really the, the mantra of the, the modern whitetail hunter. How can I improve it? How can I improve it? And that's, that's the exciting thing too about the whitetails from scratch series, which you can go to DeerSociety.com or download the free Deer Society app and see all the videos there. The Whitetails from Scratch series is 
Andy helping the Ducarts take their brand new farm from scratch and putting all these things into play to see if they can grow and hold mature whitetails. And and I shouldn't say if because yeah. Andy's pretty darn confident that uh, it'll that, happen that it's going to happen. But uh, make sure to to download that the Deer Society app and check it out there or DeerSociety.com. Um, real quick before we end here, I want to show just a little map. This is an example that uh, of a map that Andy has put together and and something that he does for his clients. So just run run us through this this process. So yeah, as we were talking uh, through the course of our conversation, you know, you've got a you've got food plot setups here with different. Uh, this is a bow and a gun setup here with. You know some ag along the sides and and a more of a winter green winter food source here your bow hunting setup is more here we've got a pond close by um all these setups are they're all looking to create you know movement for bucks within this farm and and, and kind of prevent it's similar to you guys farm almost trying to prevent uh, uh deer walking out and leaving the farm during daylight hours create that cyclical movement on the entire system you know you can see here you've got a Another, this is a, a very uh, set up for gun hunting type thing. Got a long range system here where you got ag on both sides and deer would be crossing back and forth between that ag. Uh, these green areas are all hinge cutting, you know, places where we're bedding deer in the timber all along here. And uh, just kind of a, a basic example of, of some of the ideas that we were just talking about. Yep. And, and for you guys that can't necessarily see this map, you know, it's, it's very colorful. There's things all over the map. But I think the important thing to note is that it's a plan. And that's where you always start is, is with a plan and all the things that you do on your piece of property, whether it's a thousand acres or 20 acres, all the things that you do are connected and you can start benefiting yourself now. So get out there. It's springtime. Get out there, take an inventory, see what's going on in your woods. Uh, if you're thinking about really trying to improve your ground, give somebody like Andy and AWS a call they do a lot of consulting. They're amazing at what they do and can really help improve your chances this fall. So uh, Andy, thank you very much. JJ, as always, guys, get out there. Only 171 days till deer season here in Minnesota. So we're going to we're gonna cut this podcast short and get back out in the timber. But uh, make sure to subscribe to YouTube, download the Deer Society app, and check us out at deersociety.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you.